Almighty God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So, which NFL team has the most dedicated fans? Now, by dedicated, I mean this. The highest stadium attendance, the most merchandise sales, the highest TV ratings, the most social media hits. Who would be number one? Any guesses? Green Bay, you're, you're close. You're close. Dallas Cowboys. Yep, they are America's team. Uh, they have the most dedicated fan base. Number two is actually a tie. That would be the Green Bay Packers and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Number three would be New England. Personally, I think the greatest team of all time. I'm not biased, okay, I live in Indiana, I cheer for the Colts. And number four would be the Indianapolis Colts. That's pretty dedicated, all right? But let me ask you this, if you're a Colts fan, or it doesn't matter what team you're a fan of, here's my question to you. What do you personally get out of it? You cheer them on. You don't get a big multi-million dollar contract because you're a dedicated fan. You're not gonna get a statue of yourself at the NFL Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio because you're a dedicated fan. You're not gonna have your name elevated up on some banner in Lucas Oil Stadium because you're a great fan. Whether your team wins or loses, ultimately is not gonna make any difference to your life or to mine. You're not personally involved in any of that. You may feel like you are, but you're not. Now there is a competition that does affect you, you're personally involved in. And that competition is described in our gospel reading for this morning on the back of your worship bulletin. Roman numeral number one in your sermon outline, the Spirit leads Jesus into the arena, or into the conflict. And we read verse one of our gospel reading, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Think of a coliseum, a stadium, an arena. He's led into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now the devil's not asking, Are you really the Son of God? He knows Jesus is the Son of God. 
In the previous chapter, just a few verses before our gospel reading for today, Jesus is baptized, the heavens open, and the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The devil knows Jesus is God's Son. That's not the question. The question is, what kind of son will you be? What kind of son are you anyway? Are you the kind of son who will put his own personal interest ahead of God's will? Those sons are a dime a dozen. Are you that kind of son? Or are you the kind of son who will subordinate his interests and desires to the will of God? What kind of son are you? And that's a relevant question for us today because not only in the previous chapter is Jesus baptized and declared to be God's son, but following that baptism, there is a genealogy of Jesus. And that genealogy begins in this way. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, and so on. We go all the way back in time to the very beginning. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is declared to be the son of God. And immediately following that declaration, we have our gospel reading. So the devil wants to know, what kind of son will you be? Anyway, what kind of son will you be? So this is the struggle, this is the conflict. And point A in our outline, it began in paradise. The temptation of Adam and the fall of the human race. And therefore, St. Paul would write later in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's, it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of darkness in this world, the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. That's the conflict. And Christ walks right into it. He's led by God into that conflict. And point B, this conflict will be settled in the old manner, the ancient manner, which is champion warfare. You know, in the ancient world sometimes, you would have two armies squaring off against one another, and, and rather than have wholesale slaughter, they would agree, okay, uh, we'll send out our champion if you send out your champion, and that'll settle the issue. And if your champion wins, we'll leave, if our champion wins, you'll leave. We see that in 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. You see that in Homer's Iliad. I mean, basically the Iliad is one champion contest after another. That's the ancient manner of settling differences. Point number one, Adam ate in the garden, did he not? He ate the forbidden fruit. 
But Jesus will not eat in order to serve his own needs. He will subordinate his need to the will of God. That's being a faithful son. That's being a son unlike Adam. My friends, real temptation does not beckon us to do what is obviously evil. Real temptation beckons us to do what is good and noble. I mean, eating is a good thing, especially when you've not eaten for 40 days. But this hunger is God's will. This hunger, Jesus has been led directly into. And it would be sin if he were to use his divine power to serve his own needs, his own ends. That's not what he's in the wilderness to do. That would be disobedience. That would be a lack of faith in the Father who led him there and who will provide in his own way and in his own time. See, that's faith. Number two, Adam was given dominion. Adam and Eve were given dominion over all creation. All power and authority was theirs. But Adam wanted more. He wanted to be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. That was the devil's promise. Jesus seeks no elevation for himself. He seeks no power for himself. He will trust God to invest him with power in the appropriate time. And this is why at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. He will wait for God to give him that authority. He will not take it. And number three, Adam put God to the test by believing the devil, the, the devil's words, you will not surely die. You will not surely die if you eat this fruit. Jesus rejects the devil's promise, the very same promise of invulnerability. Jesus rejects that promise, and he will not put God to the test. And the devil promises, go ahead, leap off the pinnacle of the temple. God will protect you. You're invulnerable. You will not surely die. You see, one after another, the temptation in the garden is repeated for this Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Jesus overcomes. You see, what our Lord is doing, he's undoing Eden. He is reversing the fall, our fall, into sin and death. And we see at the end of the lesson, verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You see, when two armies engage one another, one of them will eventually withdraw. That's defeat, at least temporarily. 
Point C, the devil departs, signifying temporary defeat. And point number one under part C, in a direct encounter, in a face-to-face, toe-to-toe encounter, Jesus, and this is important, Jesus as a man, as a man, he overcomes the devil. When I say as a man, I mean not with miraculous powers. He does not engage those powers, that authority. He lays it aside. We call that his humiliation. He voluntarily lays aside his divine power in order to suffer for our sake. Jesus, as a man, overcomes the devil, not with miraculous powers, but by faith and surrender to God's will. Now, after this, he will employ supernatural power, divine power, casting out demons, healing the sick, feeding multitudes. He will do that. He will invade Satan's domain, this world, releasing people from their sins, releasing people from what has bound them. But here in this encounter, he will not employ divine power. As a man, he overcomes the devil. That's why when when children in catechism class, or, or adults for that matter, say, well, Jesus could overcome temptation. He's God after all. He's not employing that power truly one of us in our place, our substitute, our champion, representing you and me. So number two, from now on, the devil will attack Jesus indirectly. He can't do it directly. He'll lose. So he will attack Jesus indirectly through Peter, through good folks, Jesus declares himself to be the Messiah. He affirms what Peter confesses. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus receives that moniker. And then he tells Peter and all the other disciples what it means to be the Messiah. He will go to Jerusalem, he will suffer, be rejected, he will be put to death, and he will rise again on the third day. And what does Peter do? He jumps in front of Jesus and says, No, Lord, this will never happen to you. And our Lord replies, Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. Later, it'll be Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples. After that, it'll be the temple police. The the devil will work indirectly to attack our Lord. So, Roman numeral two, why does this matter? What difference does it make? Point A ever reset your phone, you ever reset your computer, had problems with it. If you reset it, you you go back to the original settings, the factory settings on the machine, and it, it wipes out all the information you have in the computer. 
It's just like you've got it new from the factory once again. You go back to the original settings. That's what reset means. And that's what God is doing for the human race through the person of Jesus Christ. He's pushing reset in the person of Jesus Christ. We we'll go back to the beginning. All sin is taken away. All sin is removed. We call that objective justification, meaning it's outside of you. It's independent of you. It doesn't depend on you. God declares pardon and forgiveness to all humanity through Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you believe it. That doesn't mean anyone believes it. We call it subjective justification when someone believes what God has done for the world. That's faith in the heart. So point A, reset means to restore something to its original state. And for humanity, this is eternal life. God's resetting us back to the garden, back to eternal life. I like the way St. Paul puts it. Consequently, just as by one trespass, condemnation was brought to all men, so also through one act of righteousness, meaning the cross, justification and life comes to all people. Through that one act of righteousness, through the cross, God justifies the world. It doesn't mean all the world believes it. It doesn't mean all the world receives it. But it's for all, and that's what creates faith in any of us. The only way I know I'm going to heaven is that Jesus died for all the world. That's how I know he died for me. I'm, in, I'm part of the world. So are you. And the same selflessness that it took to go to the cross is the selflessness we see in our gospel reading for today. It's the same Son of God at work for you and for me. Point B, Adam lost paradise, which Christ has regained and promised to all who believe. You know, the thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did our Lord say today? You will be with me in paradise. The garden restored its paradise. St. Paul wrote these words, And Adam all die in Christ, all will be made alive. I can appreciate being a fan cheer for certain teams. I admire the prowess on the athletic field. It's something to admire. It's something to get excited about. But you know, when it's all said and done, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't involve you. It doesn't involve me, your future, or mine. What does matter is the competition we see in our gospel lesson for today, and this isn't the last of it, it'll continue. Through the garden, to the cross, it'll continue. This is the competition that matters. This is the one competition that determines your life, the course of your life, today, tomorrow, and forever. In Jesus' name.